Hello and welcome along again to the Northern Agenda podcast, the politics show that tells you what you need to know about the big political issues in the North. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, back on podcasting duties after a break for Easter and ready and raring to go with more expert analysis on two topics which could make a huge difference to the lives of people in our region in the coming years. First, there's carbon capture and storage, where the harmful emissions from our polluting industries in the north aren't simply released into the atmosphere, but stored in enormous undersea caverns instead. The government is backing this technology to the tune of £20 billion, but how does it all work? And will it make any difference to levelling up or net zero in places like Teesside, the Humber and the North West? I've been talking to a leading expert, Jonathan Briggs, who's director of Humber Zero with VPI Power, a firm based in Immingham, south of the River Humber. And you can hear a lot more on that in a few minutes. First, though, let's hear about another massive issue for Northern England, in fact, the whole country. We all need a fast, reliable internet connection. In fact, I'm using one right now as I record this podcast in Leeds. And across the country, most people have one. But there are still a few pockets of the country that can't get the fast broadband speeds the rest of us have come to expect. And many of them are in rural or remote towns and villages in parts of the north, places like North Yorkshire, Cumbria, County Durham and Teesside. That is a big problem for anyone trying to start a business in these areas and often means ultimately that families have to move out to find areas with better connections. There's a political element to this too. Back in 2019, Boris Johnson promised every home in the UK would have full fibre broadband by 2025. So that's in just two years from now. That perhaps rather optimistic promise was later scaled back to being 85% of homes connected with so-called gigabit capable broadband, which means it can deliver speeds of a thousand megabits of data a second, or to put it another way, download a high definition film in one minute. So the stakes are very high, and the man in charge of the effort to roll out faster broadband is Simon Blagden, who chairs the government's Building Digital UK Agency. BDUK, as it's known, is responsible for Project Gigabit, a £5 billion programme to get the fastest broadband speeds to -to hard-to-reach areas of the country. It's great we can get Simon on the podcast, particularly as there's a huge conference going on in Manchester today called Connected North, devoted to this very subject. So, Simon Blagden, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Robin. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. No worries at all. So, just as a starter question, just generally speaking, why is it the case that some parts of the country are harder to reach with this gigabit broadband than others? I I see a lot of your big contracts that you signed recently are in the north of England. So, is there a regional element to it or is it a a rural, urban, urban thing? It's, it's a mix of both. Look, I think you, you mentioned what I call the digital divide about levelling up. And um, for I'm, I'm from North Yorkshire. And uh, in my little village in North Yorkshire, at the time that we were all working from home during the, the pandemic, it became evident that there were some households and businesses that had really good connectivity to broadband and some others that, quite frankly, had uh, really poor connectivity. And if there was ever any good sort of illustration of the difference that different households and businesses had than the pandemic uh, was, was that illustration. So it's about levelling up. It's about bringing the country as a whole to much higher, greater capability of speed uh, on gigabit. The regional element is that a lot of our rural areas out of our big towns and cities are the ones that are the most hardest to reach. You mentioned gigabit being 1,000 megabits per second. Well, the way to 
to attain that is by using a fibre infrastructure. And that means rolling out new fibre cables to these premises, to these homes, to these businesses. And of course, quite frankly, the more rural you go, the more difficult it becomes. The longer the distances to lay the cable and uh, the more uh, challenging the geography and terrain. So it it is both about uh, creating a digital levelling up and also at the same time about focusing on those regional areas that are very hard to reach. And and you mentioned the north. The north in particular has some of the most challenging geography when it comes to that. It's interesting that you, I I didn't realise that you yourself lived in a a North Yorkshire village, which, so you've experienced some of the difficulties that people in more rural locations might 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 know about i mean it, it seems like you can get the fastest giga, you can get the fastest internet speed yourself where you are in your in your village in yorkshire up until recently not um so uh, again if i go back two years the school in our village uh, didn't have a, a fast broadband connection but five miles away in the next uh, village they did and it's that kind of and when you you look at uh, homes where during the pandemic, families were all trying to work off one broadband connection. Uh, often the parents having to do their work from home, the school children having to uh, do lessons remotely. Uh, and then, of course, uh, socially, you mentioned downloading films, but also communicating with friends and family. You suddenly realised just uh, the disparity there was uh, with some of these areas. Now, uh, my village, along with a number of other rural communities, has now been connected and the programs going on, and we have quite a progressive program. You mentioned our targets by uh, 2025. We were, we are on track, and we will have 85% of the UK connected to gigabit connectivity, and uh, by 2030, the whole of the country. So it's a, it's a big progressive target, and in fact, one of the most progressive infrastructure bills that the government's got going at the moment. So obviously, it's great that all this capability is being rolled out around the country. But you know, you visited a lot of the areas where this is happening. Can you just sort of give me a bit of an insight into what difference it makes to people's lives to have this much better broadband connection uh, in, in sort of some of the more remote parts of the country? Well, it makes a huge, uh, huge difference. So for a start, if you look at uh, the rural community in terms of businesses there, farming businesses and the associated businesses, up until now, um, have not had that opportunity and that connectivity. And more and more, the way they do business is more uh, online or needs online capability to really benefit from some of the high-tech advances being made in, in, in farming generally. So that makes a huge difference. It transforms the way they run their businesses. And also, if you have a look at one of the PM's big aims, his five aims, is economic growth. Now we have a situation where these former rural communities that are now better uh, connected with Gigabit have the opportunity to really take part in in the full economic growth. New businesses moving into the area that before were put off by the fact that they were remote in terms of uh, Gigabit connectivity and the chance for people to create new jobs and skills in those areas. So it really makes a huge difference. And then in the household, it means various people can work and work from home and enjoy all of the benefits of entertainment that come with good gigabit connectivity simultaneously and all at the same time. So it makes a huge difference. Things that people often in urban communities take for granted. This is changing people's lives in the rural community. As you say, uh, you're overseeing Project Gigabit, which has a, a £5 billion 
£1,000 budget. Is it essentially the case that you're stepping in where commercial providers don't think it's viable to install the infrastructure that's required required for this you're sort of filling in the gaps that private operators don't feel they want to they want to fill themselves yes and no look we have uh, over a hundred broadband providers in the uk some of the bigger household names you'll know but also some very smaller uh, regionally based com- uh, companies and of course, like all companies, they, they have to return a profit on their investment. So it's quite true to say that the commercial build um, uh, focuses on the areas that co- are commercially viable. Uh, and, and when you come to the rural side and the rural communities, of course, it becomes more expensive the more rural you go. We've been very fortunate that there's been a very progressive build in the commercial sector where the telecom operators have been building at at pace and uh, moving away from the urban areas into semi-rural areas. But what's true is that none of the uh, ultra-rural areas and the more harder-to-reach areas will ever get done unless the government steps in and helps with that programme. So what we do is we run a number of procurements regionally around the country based on different harder to reach areas following big technical surveys. And um, these commercial companies bid to win those areas. And if successful, using their own money and partly government subsidy, we have this plan then to build and roll out the networks. As you say, BD UK has signed a few big contracts in the north in recent months in some of our rural areas. I see there's a deal for 4,000 properties in rural Teesdale in County Durham, 3,700 in the north of Northumberland, right up near the Scottish border. And the biggest one by far, 60,000 homes in rural Cumbria. I mean, it sounds like it's a lot of homes to connect. Can you just explain to our listeners sort of what work that actually in, entails for these really big jobs? And, and are all these contracts going ahead as planned? When will people start seeing the benefits from these uh, these contracts? Yeah, certainly. I mean, first, I think it would be a good idea just to uh, set some parameters of where we've got to. I mean, as of today, for instance, 75% of premises in the UK can benefit from a gigabit connection. That's three in every four uh, households. So uh, things are going really well. And that puts us very much on target for our uh, 2025 figure. We've got over 1 billion of uh, procurements launched so far from BDUK, and that's going to cover up to 730,000 premises across the UK. Already we've awarded seven contracts, and you've mentioned some of those. If you have a look at the Teesdale one, you mentioned there it's 4,000 premises. Um, and that we gave six, um, 6.6 million subsidy to the Teesdale project to help go fibre, the company who's been awarded the contract, to build there. And the minute that the contracts are awarded, what happens next is the companies go and complete their full technical audit of the area and start the digging and start putting in the, the network. And we will have all of the UK covered by uh, into contracts by uh, later this year. And uh, the plan, as you say, is to get everywhere uh, connected by 2025. And beyond the number of contracts that are awarded and the effect that the government subsidy has in terms of delivering the network, it has a lot of knock-on advantages as well. It's creating employment locally, both in the construction 
but in the wider supply chain uh, for uh, materials and product that go into the network. It's creating new skills. A good example would be in the Northwest where we have awarded a contract. They've set up an apprenticeship scheme to train new engineers uh, in fiber rollout. And the opportunities in education and uh, providing more sustenance to the rural economy are huge. So it it has a great effect uh, in these areas that we've already contracted. Is there a lot of disruption for the communities involved? Because as you say, it involves quite a lot of digging work and installing the, the cables and the pipes and so forth. Is that, is that disruptive for the communities involved? Like how do you keep the disruption to a, to a minimum? Yeah, look, it can be. Um, the model that we work with, the companies who awarded the contract, they have to be very clear and specific about how they're going to build it. And we audit that and make sure it's done properly. This is how it goes. I mean, I spend a lot of the time visiting the areas that are now going into installation. Uh, you'll always find someone who's upset with the disruption and then uh, several more people who are really in, really pleased that the network capability is coming to their area. So, uh, of course, we try and keep uh, disruption to a minimum. Where possible, the companies who awarded the contract try and use current existing infrastructure uh, of ducts, underground ducts and poles. But inevitably, for a build and a project of this size, Uh, there's always going to be uh, the need to dig up uh, the road and to to lay the cable. But as I say, we work with these companies to ensure the disruption is as minimal as possible. And you mentioned the 85% target by 2025. So you're confident, are you, that you can get the last 10, 12, 13% uh, of the country that you you need to get connected in 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 the remaining two years? There's still quite a lot of properties to... To, to cover, isn't it, in that, in that time? So a lot of properties to cover. And also, uh, by the very nature, uh, it, it's probably the harder ones to do uh, because uh, how build goes is these commercial companies that win the contracts are extending beyond their current commercial rollout uh, into the areas surrounding them. And the harder to reach ones uh, aren't necessarily the last ones to receive connectivity, but certainly it becomes harder as we go along. But where we sit at the moment with the support we've got from the industry, uh, from the way that the team in BDUK, we have an excellent team here of commercial people, engineers, uh, specialists, the way they're working. I can sit here today and say, I have a really confident view that by 2025, we're going to hit that 85% target. Are there any areas of the country that you think you won't be able to reach with Project Gigabit? Is is 100% gigabit coverage uh, a, a realistic possibility, given there are, you know, there are some people who live really in the middle of nowhere. Are you confident by twenty thirty you can get you can get a gigabit capability out to even even to those people? Yes, I mean, look, um, predominantly we want to use a, a fibre connectivity, a backbone to give that gigabit. Uh, but in some of the very ultra rural areas, there's new technologies coming along, including the use of satellite, for instance. Uh, where on those specific uh, properties, we can make an intervention by using a different technology. So the aim is to do, you know, the whole of the country uh, by 2030. And we believe that we can achieve that. What's been really key to um, the success of the Gigabit project so far has been the hard work and enthusiasm of the commercial uh, companies, the telcos. And um, 
they don't often get publicly thanked, but I'd just like to thank them for all the hard work they do in ensuring that the UK is going to be levelled up from a digital point of view and fully connected. Simon Blagden, thank you very much for speaking to me today. Thank you. Now, if you're interested in the environment, you might well have caught some of the coverage recently of what was described as Green Day, not the 1990s pop punk band, but a series of new proposals by the government to reach its challenging environmental targets. There wasn't a whole load of new money promised by Energy Security Secretary Grant Chaps, but what there was, was a focus on something called carbon capture and storage. What is that? At its very basic level, it's capturing the harmful emissions from our big polluting industries, that we have a lot of in the north of England and storing them in vast containers, vast caverns under the sea. But there's a lot more to it than that. And crucially, it's seen as a major potential source of jobs in places like Teesside and the northwest of England, where local voters could well hold the key to number 10 when the next election comes round in a few months time. So as we did with hydrogen a few weeks ago, let's hear from a leading expert in the field to get a sense of what this technology is all about and why the government is putting so much resource, 20 billion pounds in fact, into carbon capture and storage. I'm very pleased to be joined by Jonathan Briggs, who as well as being director of Humber Zero with VPI Power, a firm based in Immingham, south of the River Humber, is also chairman of the Carbon Capture and Storage Association. So, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. It's great to have you on. So, for our listeners who just need bringing up to speed on this whole sector, perhaps you could just start by setting out broadly what, what is carbon capture and storage? How, how does it work and how has it sort of come to prominence over the years? Well, firstly, carbon capture and storage is one of the critical parts of, of getting to net zero is, as I think has widely been identified. But, um, and the reason is because if we're to continue in terms of using energy in the way that we are, we'll need to be capturing the carbon from industry, from power emissions, from hard to abate industries as well. And what, it, what it, essentially the technology um, is been around for many years, it essentially either takes the carbon before the fuel is actually used um, for combustion, so pre-combustion capture, or after you've burnt fossil fuels or used energy in a, in a way, you can actually scrub the um, emissions in such a way to capture the carbon. And the storage part is absolutely key as well, because essentially what you're doing is you're taking the carbon in the form of carbon dioxide and you're pumping it underground for, for long-term or for sequestration. In other words, it's going to stay there. For people who haven't got a sense of the scale of this uh, what i've been reading suggests that there's a huge amount of potential capacity under the sea is it something like we could there's enough capacity in these underground caverns to store europe's co2 emissions for years if not decades to come is that it's it's that sort of big an opportunity yeah that's exactly right it's, it's a huge opportunity for the uk so we've been blessed to have a, a north sea oil and gas industry for, for many decades and it's becoming, now it's transitioning to a different phase of its um, life, if you will. Um, ultimately, it's maturing. We're looking to, to repurpose those same assets. And we have access to a lot of essentially pore space or storage space to reuse that, that, that storage space for storing carbon dioxide. So you're absolutely right. We can um, take basically the emissions from not just the UK, but all, all of uh, Europe for, for decades to come if we were to repurpose 
those same fields. So what kind of spaces are we talking about? Like, it, 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 are these naturally occurring sort of spaces under, under the ocean? Like, what, what, kind of, what kind of thing is it? So it, essentially, it's rock. It's the same rock that used to store um, oil and gas from which we extracted the, those fossil fuels. And essentially, it's tiny spores, pore space that we would actually almost, you know, re- recycle the, the fuels that we've extracted in the form of just the carbon dioxide and pump it underground for long-term and permanent storage. What is the significance of all this for the north of England? Because we know that a large proportion of the UK's most polluting sectors are in the north, but places like uh, the Humber and, and Teesside compared with other parts of the country. So does, does that mean the opportunities in the north are greater for this technology to be used? Absolutely. So there's actually a really interesting um, overlay between the centres of the UK's uh, industrial concentrations. So as you say, the, the Humber and the Teesside uh, areas are great examples, in, certainly in the northeast, but also in the, in the northwest around uh, Liverpool. But you've got these concentrations of industry where you have the concentrations of, of emissions that go with it. And then we're fortunate enough uh, also in the UK, the stores that we just talked about are also proximate to those concentrations of industry. So we have a, we have a great opportunity to, to basically combine the mitigation of carbon and capturing carbon in those uh, industrial heartlands, if you will, and being able to actually connect those up to the stores, which are right there proximate um, in the North Sea. So, so, very well placed in terms of having those assets available to us. I was talking about the uh, the big energy strategy announcement, this so-called Green Day announcement last month, and it emerged that part, several parts of the country are being invited for these so-called Track One talks with the government about developing carbon capture and storage. And Teesside featured prominently, and so did the Northwest. But areas like the Humber, which, where, where you work, and also Scotland, didn't get mentioned. So can you just explain the significance of that and what it means for the hopes of developing this industry in, in the Humber region? Sure. So, so first of all, I mean, remember that CCS has been, it's an industry that's been waiting to deploy for some years. And, and to, to, today, we don't have any CCS or industry to speak of in terms of we're not capturing carbon and we're not storing it um, as of today. So we're, we're starting from scratch, if you, if you like, and we really need to, there's general recognition that we really need to scale up what we're doing to a really material level. So there's, it's all about timing and sequencing. So that's really the origin of the government strategy around track one. And what you hear about in terms of track one and track two is trying to, recognizing that we want to, to basically enable CCS in all of the industrial uh, uh, heartlands, if you will, all of the industrial concentrations, including the Humber, but recognizing that there's a natural progression. And I think one of the things that the government has done in Green Day is recognize that track one needs to be followed and almost needs to be uh, progressed at the same time as another track process in, tr- in terms of track two. So whereas the Humber in particular doesn't have any projects in the current track one list, clearly around track two, the government's already um, nominated a 
a qualified store for the Humber in Viking. Uh, Viking's a sizable um, store right next to the, the Humber estuary, which really will be a dedicated store initially to deploy Humber projects, such as the one that, um, that we're leading here at um, Humber Zero um, around the cluster of the, the Immingham uh, industrial site. So very much it's a, it's a start, it's a progression. The Track 1 projects did uh, look to start off in Teesside and, and over in the northwest, but I think it'll be closely followed um, by building up to materiality via the, the Track 2 process, of which um, the Humber is going to look to Viking to see its uh, decarbonisation pathway emerge. For people who to whom this all sounds a bit sort of, I don't know, but it, it, quite a bit abstract and a bit pie in the sky, does, does it, it's going to equate to real jobs, isn't it, in, in the Humber and in Teesside and in the Northwest? Like if, if, if this technology can be adopted and made to work and rolled out on a wide scale, there will be a genuine economic economic difference made to these areas, lo- lo- lots of which have been, you know, sort of, sort of so-called left behind areas, which are still sort of recovering from industrial decline. So it, it is going to be a meaningful thing for people in these areas. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's um, a lot of it is about preserving the, the strength of the industrial base in those clusters or heartlands, if you, if you like. And essentially, if we're going to get to 2050, we need to find ways of safeguarding industry. Um, and, and that's clearly one of the, the, the central strands of, of what this really means for areas like Humberside uh, and Teesside. Um, but also, you know, we talked about the, the opportunity for the UK, the, the, the natural advantages, the strategic assets that we have in terms of geologic storage. If we're able to basically deploy that know-how at the beginning of this energy transition, there's a massive opportunity for the UK because ultimately... A lot of countries don't have, a lot of um, geographies don't have the same assets that we do. So we'll, we'll be developing something a bit special that others won't have. So it's, it's going to have opportunities in terms of growth there, but also safeguarding the industry that we do have in the UK as well. Now, we do hear criticisms of the government and its focus on carbon capture and storage. I've read some of them in recent days. And one, I think, is that the technology is not yet proven. And in fact, Grant Chaps was saying himself recently that there was still a long way to go to get carbon capture and storage where it needs to be actually, you know, actually working. I mean, what, what, what would you say to that? Firstly, any in- industry that's deployed from sort of a standing start learns a tremendous amount in that process. And I would say the UK has built a fantastic offshore wind industry, which um, it's learned from and the efficiencies, the cost of um, offshore wind, for example, is a testament to how we've managed to actually learn through the process of deployment. And, and we would aim to do the same. We would obviously aim to do the same in, in deploying CCS to get to the, the cost profile that we would, we would expect to see in a similar way. It is, you know, at the end of the day, it's something that, you know, is a central part to getting to 2050. So we need to learn very quickly, but we also need to recognize that it's not, it's, it's an industry that's, whose technologies have been deployed for many years as well. The part that we're going to learn is how to do this at scale and to, to really 
build the infrastructure in such a way that we can really tap into not just the large scale projects that will give us economies of scale, but also get access to to really fully decarbonize our economy, which really will take a lot of, I would say, deployment and infrastructure deployment in particular, so that we can really access all of the hard to to, to, uh, abate industries and the areas of the economy that we wouldn't necessarily get to by just looking to the industrial heartlands. We have to go beyond that to really get to 2050. So as a final thought, what's the next step for this now? Obviously, we're looking to the future, looking 10 years, 20 years into the future. But in the short term, what what do you, in the industry, what do you need government to do next on this? Well, commitment's key because we started off on a journey and it's great uh, as to, to, um, to what we've seen in the last couple of weeks and certainly in the last couple of years, really, it's been a, a journey. But we need to stay on that journey with a real purpose, because these are, you know, again, this is about infrastructure, large scale infrastructure deployment that's going to make a difference. So we really need to, to move forward quickly with these projects. We need to demonstrate as an industry that, that we really are capable of learning from each other and bringing down the costs over time, because ultimately this is something that um, we all as taxpayers are going to be looking to get the benefit from. But we need to move forward quickly we need to get build to scale so that we can actually make a difference again because this is this is going to be something that's going to build over a number of years and as i say we need to to demonstrate that we can actually learn um, from the initial deployment of these projects to take those learnings and actually reduce cost over time and do things more efficiently to actually drive down the cost that we we just identified a second ago sounds like there is a lot of potential in this line of work jonathan briggs thank you so much for talking to me today thank you Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts, See you next week. Bye-bye.